Welcome to episode 33 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. going to talk about an issue that is huge, that is as big as this country and is really what the country is about. And it's identity. Identity politics is what they call it if you are a white person and you're pretending to be a Latina or if you're just white and pretending to be anything other than white. But what do they call it when you are a white supremacist and you call yourself conservative or you call yourself a nationalist? Words, identity, image, That's what we're going to be talking about here on Brown and Black. Some kind of moment. And I think that the photo is not complimentary of the power of this woman and what she means to us in in as people of color and what she's going to mean as a, a history maker and breaker. And I think that it is a disservice, frankly, and, and it really bothered me. I mean, we've seen Michelle Obama and so many extraordinary photos and covers of Vogue. Like, what is this? It looked like it was done... Um, you know, from at a like, hotel room, yeah, with like the the bedding of the of the of the bed of the via Zoom. Via Zoom. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, I mean, it, it just seemed really disrespectful, and I'm like, and then it's and then it's the month of Black History. It's like the February cover, and it's she didn't a deserve it. he didn't deserve that, and it's a young black kid who's the photographer. It just Tyler Mitchell, yeah, yeah. It just like it wasn't good for anybody because you know, at the end of the day, I think. Uh, celebrities and 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 celebrated people, you know, it's it, we're gonna, you know, people are gonna start saying, you know, look, I want to look good. <laughs> I mm-hmm. want, to, you know, I need to make sure that my image is 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 right. Um, and that was just really unfortunate. So that's my take. That was a quick snippet from our interview with the creators of Antebellum, which you will hear later in the podcast. But we asked them what they thought about the recent Vogue cover controversy. So to bring you up to speed, this weekend, Vogue released two covers of the new Kamala Harris February issue. It's an important issue because it's the issue that puts our first female vice president of the United States on the cover. It's the first elected official that Vogue has ever put on. Now, you might be like, well, what about AOC? Well, that was Vanity Fair, not Vogue. This is truly the first elected official. Michelle Obama is not an elected official and during the Obama presidency. She's the first lady. So she has no power to create laws or to do tiebreakers in the Senate or anything of that nature. Kamala Harris, in essence, is the most powerful woman in America. And it was extremely important for this cover to symbolize that, Mike, to match that, to match that weight that the country needs from that cover. And I think what ended up happening was that they screwed up. They hired a kid named Tyler Mitchell, black kid photographer. He shot Beyonce. The kid is 26 years old. This dude must be a prodigy. He is probably one of the most famous young black photographers in the States. And they gave him the keys to shoot Kamala Harris. So the first cover was one of her and Chuck's, a black suit. And had that, like, hi, I'm here type of look. The lighting seemed poor. Brother, it just looked cheap. And the problem with Vogue is that Vogue has sold for over 100 years prestige, brother. So to get a cover that completely sold the opposite of prestige, that's where things got controversial. So Twitter went on fire. Hours later, they put on a powder blue cover of Kamala Harris that made her look so much more vice presidential. 
And I think that the overall messaging here, the the big beef with Twitter against Condé Nast and Anna Winter and Vogue and that cover was, is it because Kamala Harris is black? Is it because Anna Winter has shown racist tendencies in a white supremacist company called Condé Nast? Is Anna Wintour the queen of white supremacy? Has she built an identity of white supremacy in the media business, especially in fashion? After what happened, she's basically in charge of every editorial at Condé Nast, and everybody follows the Anna Wintour look. I think everybody thought this is her going after black people. So she recently went on a podcast in, in the New York Times where she made this announcement. Actually, you know what? Let me read it to you. Here's here's what the statement said. When the two images arrived at Vogue, all of us felt very, very strongly that the less formal portrait, which is the one with the chucks, of the vice president really reflected the moment that we were living in. We are in the midst of the most appalling pandemic that is taking lives by the minute, and we felt to reflect this tragic moment in global history, a much less formal picture, something that was very, very accessible and approachable, and really reflected the hallmark of the Biden-Harris campaign. That statement right there said this to me, that everybody at Vogue, the team, including the black photographer Tyler Mitchell, they all loved the Chuck president, the Chuck VP. Harris's team said that that's not what they agreed to, and they agreed to the powder blue one, which, again, makes her look very presidential. And here's what I ultimately think about this issue, Mike. Number one, stakes were extremely high here, and unfortunately, even fashion has been politicized. But what that statement says to me is that Anna Wintour needs to resign. She needs to step down and allow for someone else Probably someone black, like Ed Edenfall, the Vogue editor of the UK magazine. I think he should take over her. He's black. And I think that the reason she should resign is because Anna no longer has has a sense of the culture and the trends of where we're headed to. She is at odds with the climate of this country and where it is right now. Well, a couple of things. I have a lot of opinions on this as well. I probably won't talk about it as long as you do, but I don't blame the photographer in any way, shape, or form. But he was part Uh, of the choosing of the photo, Mike. I don't blame the photographer in any way, shape, or form. He's a gun for hire. You do what you're told. You do what you're supposed to do. When you go to a shoot like a Vogue shoot, you're the photographer, but there's an art director, a stylist. You've got people there helping you with the lighting. You're taking the photos and you're directing to an extent, but you've got a mandate from those in charge. I agree with you on a lot of points, but I I disagree that Anna Wintour has lost touch. Fashion to me is never supposed to be- She is fashion. Let me finish. Let me finish. She uh, To me, fashion has always represented, or what fashion is supposed to be is- fashion forward it's it's what's coming you know you say she's not in charge of the pulse well fashion is supposed to be leading us somewhere and image representation is everything so to me she represents everything that is wrong with this country and the thinking that comes from those in power the fact that like you said her whole team thought this is the way to go That's the problem. Not that they took these two different types of photos, but that they thought this is the way to go. It looks like it was a test shot before they set things up. That's what it looks like. Now, that was not chosen by the photographer. That was chosen by the magazine. You go to any photo shoot or you work with any photographer, I'm sure you have photographer friends, they shoot tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of photos. Then the editors narrow it down. They narrow it down to what they want to fit the narrative because this is editorial. This is not just a poster. This is an editorial. This is an article. The heading is Madam Vice President Kamala Harris and the New Mm -hmm. America. So is the New America a woman in a casual suit with sneakers? What is that saying? We all know what it's saying. Okay. But what it's also saying to me is the perception, the perception that these in my opinion, clearly white folks have about what she represents, what she is. They saw her as a cualquiera, dude. 
Cualquiera in Spanish means like anyone, just anyone. This is not anyone. This is one of our most cherished female women in politics and power in this country. Well, it, it, not only that, but this is the way you are suggesting. It's diminishing her. her blackness and her power. Black power to Anna Wintour is black shit. The other topic we want to get to that I think goes along with the theme of this is image, representation, identity. White media calls what Hilaria Baldwin did and what the attorney who pretended to be Latina and a number of other women who are in positions of running organizations and being representatives for Latin organizations, they call that identity politics. I think that's a bullshit term. Okay, I think it's a way of, again, using words to diffuse the reality of this. But I'm very curious. I have a lot of thoughts on this issue, but I'm very curious to what your take. Take me through a Jack Rico timeline (laughs) (laughs) of hearing about Hilaria Baldwin and then going on to see that there are like two or three other stories very similar. Natasha Lycia or Bannon the historian Jessica Krug, all white women plassing as Latina and not even touching upon Maya Ponceta yet. So back in 2020, which was just a few weeks ago, Hilaria Baldwin, towards the end of the year, essentially was called out by her friends from Boston, from her old college, about the commitment she's been making to having a Spanish accent. Everybody was laughing at her. All of a sudden, it was picked up by the media and by Twitter, and they're like, holy smokes. Dude, w- somebody should hire uh, Twitter as investigative journalists, man. These guys are amazing. Hillary had to go on Instagram and actually explain because it had blown itself out of proportion. She even talked with the New York Times about what was going on. Alec Baldwin himself had to go on Instagram to defend her. They got like five kids together. And she went on Instagram herself, and here's what she essentially had to say. So there's been some questions about where I'm born. I'm born in Boston. And then I spent some of my childhood in Boston, some of my childhood in Spain. My family, my brother, my parents, my nephew, everybody is over there in Spain. Now I'm here. And so there was like a lot of back and forth my entire life. And I'm really lucky that I grew up speaking two languages. And I'm trying to raise my kids so that they speak two languages too. Um, and that's something that's very important for me, especially having my family abroad. Um, so that was one thing. I think people ask sometimes about how I speak. I am that person that if I've been speaking a lot of Spanish, I, you know, tend to mix them. And if I'm speaking more English, I, you know, doing a lot of English, then I mix that. It's one of those things that's always been a little bit, I've been a little insecure about over different times. And, you know, when I try to work, I try to enunciate a little bit more. But if I get nervous or upset or something, then I start to to mix the two. And again, that's just something that I've always been a little bit insecure about. But I've decided maybe 2021, we will get over that. And I'm definitely addressing it very openly right now with that insecurity. Um, but this idea that I'm trying, I do actually, I mean, I try to speak more clearly in each language. Um, um, so my, when I was growing up, I, and in this country, I would use the name Hillary and in Spain, I would use the name Ilaria and my family, like my parents, they call me Ilaria, my, my whole family call me Ilaria and, um, and it was something that was always kind of like a, I see other people do it, and it always kind of bothered me that like neither name sounded good in the other language. So I would, you know, use one or the other. When I was a dancer, I would use that. Um, in American high school, I, did, I would do that. Um, and then, um, in, then, you know, a handful of years before I met Alec, I decided to consolidate the two because it was just like so many documents that so many different things and all these, you know, um, 
like even things like going and picking up a prescription, I'd be like, I don't know what what you have on file. Um, so I consolidated and I identify more with Gilarium because that's what my family calls me. And I don't know, but one of the things I love about what my parents call me is that it means happy. It means happy in both languages. I think that we can all be really like clear that it's the same name, just like a few letters different. So I think we shouldn't be so upset about it. And if whatever you guys want to call me, I will respond to both. Um, I've said some things about like, oh, she's a white girl. Yes, I am a white girl. I am a white girl. And let's be very clear that Europe, you know, has a lot of white people in them, in there. And my family is white. I'm, you know, ethnically, I am a mix of many, many, many things. Um, culturally, I grew up with the two cultures. So it's really as simple as that. But it's my weird mix of who I am. Vacationing in Spain does not make you a Spaniard. The fact that you're family loved Spain, who doesn't when they go there, they fall in love and they become so enamored with the culture, the language, the food, the people, the landscapes that are very different than the ones in America. I believe, Mike, that it is your right to choose how you feel about yourself within the world. So I don't blame her for loving Spain. I don't blame her for saying I feel Spaniard, but that's not what she did. She essentially said, I am Spanish. And she benefited from all the Spaniardness, the exoticness of what that gave her, her husband, and the optics socially. Where even the magazine Ola, Ola magazine, which is one of the premier uh, gossip, you know, mm -hmm. society magazines in Spain. Well, they have a USA version called Hola USA. Go look at it, Mike. There's a cover of her being celebrated as a Espanolita. Alec Wallen went on a David Letterman show and said, you know, my wife is from Spain. So obviously now what we're starting to see is something a lot more sinister, a lot more insidious, right? Creating a persona that doesn't exist. And what does that mean for Spaniards living in this country? Spaniards living in Spain that when they come to this country are not treated the same because they have an accent. Your white privilege is stuck and left at the door when you come in because your accents and your points of views that don't mirror or match the rioters, if they don't match that, you're not American. And all of a sudden you end up having Natasha Licia Ora Bannon, who is of Russian, Italian and Greek uh, ancestry saying she's Colombian Puerto Rican and, for and 10 an, years and is an advocate for Latino justice Puerto Rican justice in specific <laughs> wow so she ended up saying this lawyer Natasha ended up saying I am racially white and have always said that however my cultural identity was formed as a result of my family both chosen and chosen for me and that has always been Latinx my identity is my most authentic expression of who I am and how I pay honor to the people who have formed me since I was a child. Regardless, I get it. You want to be us. We are cool. We are the cosmic race, like Jose Vasconcelos said in his book. The super race are the Latino race. I get it. I get it. I get it. But here's the problem, though. You're not born Hispanic. You're not born Latina. You're born white with a particular white privilege that then ends up becoming white privilege in the Latin culture. Because you know that we also have hierarchies ourselves. A black Afro-Latino doesn't have the same advantages that a white Latino does. So she just went from white privilege to white privilege and said, I'm going to have both. And whenever I need to be white in this uh, circumstance, I'll be white. And if I need to be Latino white on this circumstance, I'll be white. And I'll benefit from bo both of those. And that's why she has now resigned. And I don't know if she isn't going to work as a lawyer again, man. What's interesting about this is these people, like Rachel Dolzial, they identify so much. Now, Hilaria, in my opinion, is, is just capitalizing. But what's interesting is that these are people who, they didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. They are fighting for... Latino rights, Puerto Rican rights, because they identify with it. This is what she's dedicated her life to. 
And the same thing with Jessica Krug. She was, she was a white woman pretending to be an Afro-Latina. She's a professor of Latin American and African history at George Washington University. Her real name is Jessica Krug. She called herself Cruz. What's fascinating about that, and it, it reminded me of a story from last year about an arts director in England named Anthony Ekundeo Lennon. He had been passing as a black man for years, had risen to the point where he was crazy. the artistic director for this this prestigious theater company called the Talawa. All of these things. Then he ends up getting a grant that is meant for people of color. And then, of course, the media blows up his spot. Now, what's fascinating about him is if you see him, you look him up, you look at him now, you say, well, he does look like a white guy to me. Okay. He does have very striking features. But the reason he gave for being and living as a black man is because when he was born, he's looked black. As a matter of fact, to the point where when he was a kid, when he was a little kid, all the white kids made fun of him, called him nigger, wanted to beat him up and whatnot. By the time he was a teenager, and if you look at the photos, there's a great article on this in The Guardian. You look at the photos of him, he, all his friends were black. He looks like a light-skinned brother, like he really does. And at this point, now he feels his life has been destroyed. You know, he said he was happy to embrace identity, but he didn't feel he was faking it because everybody treated him as if he was. So it brings up this whole issue of identity. Like, who are you? Like, just because you identify with something, can you be that? And where do you draw the line? It's one thing to be an advocate for Latino rights and pretend to be Latino. It's another thing to, you know, go on talk shows and go, oh, what is that word for cucumber? It's, yeah, that's it's, a, it's another thing to inhabit another person's culture as well, if you were a part of it and your ancestry is a part of it. Not only that. The, now, you and, can be an honorable Spaniard, no, an honorable but, black person, sure, but, but not pass off as one. Passing yourself off, but then what are you doing with your life? Are you trying to help people of color? Are you trying to help Latinas, uh, Puerto Ricans, like this lawyer was? Or are you just profiting, like you said, from the exoticness of it? Let's call it for what it is, Mike. This is cultural appropriation on the highest every level. On facet the highest level. of the highest levels of what you can say. There is no way that this isn't cultural appropriation. It is. But, but on the reverse side, then you mm -hmm. have someone like Mia Ponsetto, <laughs> <laughs> the 22-year-old Soho Karen, who is Puerto Rican, by the way. And uses that as her shield. Yeah. Like, oh, and by I the way, can't be racist because I'm Puerto Rican. I'm part Puerto Rican. And, you know, here's the interesting part that the kid, Harold Jr., uh, that she dude, tackled like an NFL game, that kid's Puerto Rican, too. He's Afro-Latino, Puerto Rican. So this is a story about two Puerto Ricans that were never mentioned as such on CBS This Morning when Gail King presented it. She didn't present it as a Puerto Rican story. She presented this as an American story. Now, yes, Puerto Ricans are Americans as well, but they live in an island without all the inland dynamics that happen here it's like a whole other world in puerto rico she didn't frame it like that she framed it almost as if she was a white woman and this kid was a black kid so it was a white black issue well again now you said something we talked about something earlier there's that that white facing white identifying white passing light privilege type of latino okay and 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 who embraces that like a, a maya and then there's the kid who is an afro latino his dad is black his mom is latina and he, i i'd say looking at him he looks like he probably embraces both it also brings a bigger issue in my head a bigger conversation about latinos wanting to be white Mm -hmm. whitewashing themselves to the point of no return. Now, let me explain something, because every time I talk about this, I want to talk about myself in the process. My name is Jack, not Joaquin, not Jose, not Juan. So you could say, well, Jack, you know, look at your name. You know, you're whitewashing yourself as well. It's not about the way I speak. It's not about the way I look. It's about my lineage, man, and how I identify with my parents coming here and what they had to confront. It's carrying the burdens, the pain of what your family went through to get to this country, to get those green cards, to get that citizenship. That's what is at stake, Mike. It's that 
You didn't go through any of that. You didn't go through any of that. And so Latinos are really pissed off that not only can they not get those positions and recognitions in America by being Latino, that someone white has to come in and just take over not only white jobs, but now Latino jobs as well. It's sort of like you get the benefits of being Latino, but you don't have to go through any of the strife. So you can be exotic and you don't have to deal with racism. One of the things that we've talked about here on the show, and and I've become keenly aware of, you know, you've talked about how your life has changed with the George Floyd. Well, part, part of my life has changed in doing this show and us delving into these topics on a weekly basis of race and identity is understanding that there is lots of serious racism in the Latino community against black people, which is part of why we do this show. So to me, when I see somebody like Maya, what's particularly uh, irksome is that sense of entitlement. I'm sure you saw her, you know, enough, Gail, you know, that whole entitled. And I don't know if you saw the video of her being arrested before when she was yeah, drunk. Yeah, dude, that was drunk pretty with bad. Her mom. That was like, but again, if that's her mom, she's out drinking with her mom, you know, that's... Lindsay Lohan level. <laughs> You're right. Anyway, I, I, I am also curious for you, though, Jack, where, where do you feel you can draw the line, though? You know, if you identify with a culture and then you're going to try and help it, you're going to support it as a lawyer, as a, as a teacher of, of African or Latin history, do you get a pass? You know, if, you, if you're doing artistic work, this, this, this guy who, who passed for black, Anthony Lennon, 48 prominent black artists and activists wrote in support of him because of the work he's been doing with his life up to that point. Do these people get a pass? And, you know, where do the lines get blurred? No one's going to say that this woman, uh, Natasha, or Hilaria, meant to somehow diminish us in any way. There was no criminal acts happening here, Mike. That, black, that, that white man that wanted to be black, I don't think he meant to create any stir with this i think this is all strictly that they don't like being white absolutely they do not identify with it and there's other categories in society where people just don't feel what they're born into and that they want to change and some of those people actually change i think a lot of this is about what happens when someone is born not feeling what they're supposed to be and having to feel that they need to change it so that they can correct it somehow. That's what I think we're dealing with here. That's the prison of identity. One of the most controversial films of 2020 was a movie called Antebellum, which is an American thriller film written and directed by Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz in their featured directorial debuts. The film stars Janelle Monet, Eric Lang, Jenna Malone, Jack Houston, Gabrielle Sidibe, and it follows a modern-day African-American woman, very popular, very smart, very famous, and author who finds herself in a southern slave plantation and must escape. There she is. Guess what? Daddy is going to get you dressed for school today. We are descendants of the gods. This land was always ours. But we must never relent. We're nowhere. And everywhere. You're from Virginia, right? I can tell. You're special. We are the future. You. You're not like the others. Whoever you were before, 
That's over. as human beings respond to in all art is truth. And there's a lot of truth in this. Some of it is very difficult. This is a polarizing film, but as we discuss in the interview, sometimes polarizing stories, polarizing events, like what happened at the Capitol, are the catalyst for change. If we talk about the movie being so polarizing, I think that that both Christopher and I had that expectation and actually wanted that because what it would demonstrate is that we created something um, that isn't milk toast. Um, it's not homogenized. It's actually, it has a, a distinctive voice and a very specific and particular perspective. We have to be really careful as artists and critics and media in how it's one thing if we really critique the craft of what someone is doing. It's another thing if we tell artists you know, the subject matter that they are allowed to explore or that is appropriate for the time. We are motivated in making art as activism to catalyze a national dialogue around a whole host of issues, not the least of which is race in America. And if you are not leaving antebellum feeling like you've had an experience and that you want to go and have a conversation about it, then we haven't done our jobs. And what we also were not going to do is serve as co-conspirators in the erasure of our own history, our own shared history and experience. Uh, the brutality, if people talk about uh, the brutality of antebellum, I would say look no further than just watching CNN day before yesterday. And uh, you know, watch it next week or watch it tonight. I think that it, that it's really tempting um, the seduction in making ourselves believe uh, the world that we live in is not the world that we live in. And until we can confront it head on with all of its ugliness, in all of its ugliness, then we're never really going to fully move on. When we um, have the, the quote from Faulkner at the beginning of the film, uh, it feels so prescient, so prophetic. But if you've been watching the news over the past 10 or 15 years, you would know that this is going to just continue repeating itself until we can actually get to the root of the problem. And so that's what we're trying to, in some small way, contribute with Antebellum and all of our films moving forward. We don't have any interest in making movies that make people feel like you know what, I can eat a bowl of cereal, deal with my kids, I can multitask and watch your film. Antebellum is not that. Antebellum is a film that demands your complete and total attention, polarizing, it, depending upon the context, uh, can be a good thing. Um, I think being angry uh, is a, depending on the context and what you do with it, is a much more productive emotion than sitting in in sadness and despair. I, I want people and Christopher want people to be activated into action. And I think that cinema uh, still has that unique and incredible power to do that. Uh, Christopher and Gerard, you know, what I saw about this film is that this is the past and the present colliding here in America. You talked about the opening scene as being uncomfortably beautiful in recent interviews. And when I hear that, that is very difficult to achieve. And I wanted to understand, because uncomfortably beautiful is not just the opening scene, but I would say that's the whole tone of the film. How did you, uh, how did you, how did both of you get to that place where you felt that you achieved something that is so disturbing at moments. My wife walked out seven minutes, eight minutes in because she could not take it. And she's a, she's a Latina, she's a Hispanic, and she was like, this isn't for me. 
I am a film critic. These are the types of movies that that move me, that I need to understand what the social commentary is. I need to understand how you think. And you told the story, but did it set out to accomplish what you, the creator, wanted? You know, I think in, in what Gerard was talking about and how it was uh, so divisive, really, I think that, you know, a lot of that speaks to the the subject matter and and stories that um folks are very uncomfortable with understandably um but you know in talking to each other we really felt that you know you you never really get that criticism no one says oh another holocaust movie and i think it's important that we as americans understand our history and because it, it as we see constantly it repeats and you even have all these textbooks in Texas talking about, you know, calling, calling enslaved people workers who came from Africa and all this softening of the history. And that's not helping. We, we need to confront it. And, and we really wanted to do that in this film and not shy away from it. And, uh, and we don't think that, that we did. Look, I think that it's a very difficult thing as a, as a Black person in America, as an artist, who is saying something with my partner who happens to be white from Connecticut and I'm black from Texas. And we, we have this thing that we want to do, but for me to talk about slavery, if you would have told me uh, 10 years ago that my first feature film was going to be, you know, in some way based on slavery, I would have said you're smoking crack. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized that my discomfort with the subject is actually helping in the erasure of the history. Hmm. We as black people, we get tired of seeing these images of ourselves in the context of brutality and subjugation. And But at the same time, I think it's really important for America as a whole to understand the history and to stop thinking that white people, for instance, have convinced themselves of their nobility. And that's really dangerous because this is the truth that the country was built on the backs of stolen black bodies and free labor. That's the truth. And we need to get to the truth of that so that you don't walk around thinking that you can storm the Capitol and this is my country and not yours. And we've gotten to a point that we can't handle seeing the truth and this kind of brutality. And it's so disturbing. And I'm, I'm so disturbed because adult people have been living in Disney World. Are you kidding? Like adult people have been living in a, in a, in a place where their expectation and what they watch is, is, is a sedative. I'm not here to give you a sedative. I'm here to wake you up out of the sleepwalk before we sleepwalk off a cliff. Mm. This is what I'm about in the work that we're doing. It makes me sad that some people have checked out of actually sitting in the truth of the film film and getting through it because there is catharsis um, in it, but it it doesn't give that to you without you um, going through the fire and having to confront it. And I also think that as a son uh, and grandson of a black woman and brother to a black woman that it is important to me that we go out of our way to show who these people were before. And by recontextualizing America's original sin, you're able to see that these black women were pillars of their communities. They were thought leaders of their communities. They were mothers, they were wives, and they were stolen, Mm -hmm. raped, brutalized, forced into labor, branded, and had their names taken away from them. That is the reality. They'd like us to believe that we were savages and that we actually had a much better future when they did what they did. That's all lies. And I think that it's important that we recast that not only for black people, but for white America, they need to see the truth. Antebellum was the sixth most looked up word of 2020 because people didn't know what that word meant. 
You know, and I mean, our movie, they've mentioned it. It's been a big conversation. How do you pierce through the culture as a movie? And and somehow we have still been able to pierce uh, the consciousness of this country and enter into the pop culture conversation. And it's I prefer that it be polarized. I prefer that there be arguments. I prefer that there be a conversation than for it to be something that just feels like, meh. Yeah, that was good. I forgot about it right after I watched it. You're not forgetting about Antebellum. You're going to still be talking about it a week later or two weeks later. I guarantee you. Or months later, like we're doing now. <laughs> so, so no, I, first of all, I love everything you said. I feel like, I, you know, you're me. Okay. So um, uh, I agree. As, as a matter of fact, I was just speaking to Jack earlier and I said, you know, the American dream is to stay asleep, you know? So we really... Uh, we, we've invested heavily, as we, we, we've just witnessed in the last week, in a lie. And there are people who are still deeply invested in a lie. And not to get too political, but it's impossible, I think, to not see the context. Because your film it has a lot to do with context. Context, as Jack said, of the past and the present. It's, they don't just collide, but they're, they're like this. They're, they're still happening. So we saw that and people are still in denial about it. But what I love about genre films, uh, specifically horror, science fiction, and comedy, is you can talk about the human condition uh, without necessarily hitting people over the head. You know, I, I think if you are a person of color or if you're gay or transgender, the further back you go in history, it is a horror story. You know, I, I wouldn't want to live in it. It was pretty horrific. So I just want to know what your thoughts for both of you on telling stories in the genre and, and why you chose, you know, there, there are a few different ways you could have gone with this story. Why you chose to tell it this way. I love what you said about context because it's, you're right. Everything is about context. And you have these people that say gone with the wind, you know, it's the most incredible movie, most beautiful movie means the most to me. I, I heard a black high profile, black woman who I won't mention by name. Um, and this was a few years ago. And she didn't mean any harm, but she was talking about, you know, how she refers to herself as Scarlet and and how hmm. Gone with the Wind is, you know, one of her favorite movies. And that character is one of her favorite characters. This is a black woman. Wow. And I thought, wow, is right. But we suffer from this amnesia. What was acceptable five years ago and what was a part of sort of just uh, popular culture now today isn't. So black people, we didn't have images of ourselves as a black kid. I always had to imagine myself as Superman or as Spider-Man or as any of those things. And so when I watch Gone with the Wind, I see a horror film. I think it's horror. And I think that there's something really interesting about Turning the lens, which, by the way, we actually used the lenses from Gone with the Wind to shoot the film, but to turn that lens and to use the same weaponry where the utility was intended to misinform to tell the truth. And so when we talk about horror and antebellum, it is that the, the, the beauty lives in the exact same space in the exact same time as the horror, as the tragedy, as the dehumanization, as the brutality, that those two things exist in the same space at the same time. I found 9-11, for instance, to be a, a, a really, I, I think one of the things that, that boggled my mind was just how beautiful the day was. Um, and that the temperature was 73 degrees and not a cloud in the sky. And it was just beautiful. It was just perfect when horror came and reared its ugly head and paid America a visit. It's that the, the beauty and the horror, the juxtaposition, them sharing the same space, that's what makes it horror. If you turn a blind eye and you start and you start the film and you see, you know, this little white girl skipping to her mother and handing her flowers and she's coming down the steps of her plantation mansion and her life is great. And then behind the mansion, behind the plantation, there's the horror that enables her life to even happen. And that's America. 
And until we can have that conversation in a very real way, I'm telling you what you saw at the Capitol is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. So I'm not here to just, you know, give you a sedative so that Christopher and I as artists can be playing the violin on the deck of the Titanic. Not really. <laughs> I'm here to tell, you know, we're here to tell these stories and wake y'all up and get you to have a conversation. Um, and so if, if we've achieved that, we've, we've achieved our goal. Um, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I don't want to be this filmmaker who is who's self-aggrandizing and 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 celebratory of of your own work. That's not the point. The work is to catalyze a national dialogue and conversation. And that is our ardent hope is that enough people get that and can have this conversation. That's that's all we care about. You know, it's interesting as a Latino man myself, um, what I've come to learn from this whole perspective in 2020 is that slavery isn't exclusive to America. It's a global thing historically. What Spaniards did to the Native Americans, what Spaniards did to blacks, what Sp this has been going on for way too long. And the way I, what I took from this movie is that slavery doesn't belong to the past. It's a continuous cycle in America that doesn't seem to end at all. And so that was very well explained in Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, mm -hmm. where we just saw stages and evolving iterations of slavery. And I thought that your film communicated that. Now, I did want to ask uh, on a separate subject about the filmmaking process of this. This is your feature debut, which is astonishing. This came from the seat of a nightmare. And that is a great sort of metaphor for everything that's been going on. How did you get this movie greenlit on the first go? I want to preface this by saying, please be patient with me. It's going to be very short when I explain it, but I think that you'll probably get it. But when I was in elementary school, before my dad made any money, I lived in this really, really tough black neighborhood. And then my dad you know, graduated from TSU. He moved us to this white, pristine neighborhood. And there was this kid, Chip Wilson. And my first day of school, Chip would not stop messing with me and told me to meet him at the hills. It's the first day of school. We're going to have this fight. And I went to the hills and I, you know, excuse my French, but I, I beat his ass. Like, that's what happened, this white kid. The next day, I learned that he was the toughest, biggest wow. bully at school. And... I realized had I known that he was the toughest, biggest bully at school, I would have lost before I even had the fight. I didn't have any information. It was my first day at school. I didn't know that I was supposed to be so afraid of him. I just knew that I needed to do what I needed to do to defend myself as, as a kid the first day of school. The point I'm making, when we came to L.A., you know, we did not have any expectation that this was supposed to be, you know, we had, I had the nightmare. We wrote the short story. I felt the nightmare was ancestral. I felt that it was seated. I feel protected by my ancestors. I feel that my life is guided by my ancestors. And so when we walked into these places, it was, you'll do it this way. And if you don't, we'll go somewhere else. It never even, uh, we weren't there to persuade them. We were more looking for them to persuade us as to why they would be the right partner. I know that might sound arrogant or crazy, but that was just our expectation. We felt like we had something really specific to say. And if we didn't get the support from a studio to do that, we would go and get financing and figure out some way to do it on our own. You know, it, mm. it never occurred to us that we weren't going to do what we were going to do. From the moment Gerard came out to the kitchen and told me about his nightmare. I knew that this story had to, had to be told. I mean, we, we wrote the short story that afternoon. What was so horrific about it. And for me, why it's a horror movie is it's plausibility. And the fact that if the story of antebellum came onto CNN next week, would it be that surprising after what we've seen? I mean, it, it's really terrifying in that regard. And 
I, I'm glad that we were able to tell it. I'm glad that studios were interested in it. And, and you know, that those are the stories that we want to tell. I mean, we're not shying away. Our first feature film dealt with uh, American slavery. And, and our, our second feature is going to deal with the weaponization of organized religion. We don't have any. You know, straightforward love stories coming out or superhero films. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was Jack um, or if it was Mike that talked about comedy as, a, you know, Robert Townsend. And there have been a lot of brilliant people over the years that had taken satire and taken comedy or taken genre and, and communicated these really uncomfortable subject matters in a way that was palatable. That's not really the point with Antebellum. It's not that we're you know, that we're trying to um, make something that feels like a sword dipped in honey. This is the thing. I think that we are at a point now where the country, and this is what I'd like to, to leave you guys with on this, is that antebellum, the definition means before a civil war, specifically the American Civil War. And the question becomes, for us as the audience and Americans, is this the past or are we in the middle or the beginning of the new civil war? And that there's still time to stop that from happening. And I feel like the film was seeded by the ancestors and that when you talked about it being even more relevant today, it continues to bloom because I think that it came from a place as a real warning to America. And the art, I think, Antibalm as a film, is one of those films that most accurately reflects the time that it was born from. I want you to get together. That's it for this 33rd episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. We also want to let you know that we will be starting a brand new YouTube daily talk show on January 18th, Martin Luther King Day. You can also follow us and our comments and opinions on Brown Black Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.